Good morning. I'm going to invite you to pray with me before we read from 1 Peter. Father, we look to you, and in many ways, we as a people are exhausted and at our end and frustrated. And I ask that you would continue to show us who you are. Would you continue to be primary in our affections? Christ is king. And would you forgive us for the ways that we have made people and ideologies who cannot be our salvation into more than they are? Help us not to look to people or to things for hope, but to see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the only thing worth living life for, a gift and our joy. Would you produce in us, Father, an endurance, a joy despite suffering, in the midst of hardships, because we know who has won the war. Because at the end, we know who we hope in. Thank you for this church. Thank you for those who give of their time and efforts to serve you, to love the community. May we, as Rose City Baptist Church, be an example to others, tender-hearted, filled with compassion, willing to love. Help us to continue today and turn our hearts towards you as we worship. Amen. I'm going to invite you to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to the Apostle of 1 Peter. We'll be reading from 1 Peter's letter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. <clears throat> like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, 
But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Good morning. Uh, we're going to continue in First Peter, starting in chapter 2 today. Uh, so I'd like to go to Acts, uh, to a little episode from Peter's life before that. Uh, in Acts 3, Jesus has already ascended to heaven, and uh, the, the early church is beginning. People are gathering together, and Peter and John are on their way to the temple. A lame man sees them and calls out for alms, calls out, help me. And you've, you've heard this, I'm sure. Peter says, silver and gold, we have not. I have not. But what I do have, I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he helps this man up. And it's astonishing. This man, we learn, has been crippled from birth. So his feet his ankles are atrophied, have not worked for 40 years, and he has been helped to the front of the temple for years and years. He's known as the beggar at the beautiful gate. And now he's walking, and he's jumping, and he's praising God. He goes into the temple, a place of serious worship, and he's ecstatic. So there's a commotion about, and Peter says, well, don't be astonished. This is from Jesus of Nazareth. He proclaims Jesus' resurrection and power. So, of course, the rulers get upset. Somebody comes into the service right now. I wouldn't know what to do, right? They'd be upset. The rulers get upset. They send their temple guard. They try to assess the situation. They arrest Peter and John, put them in jail. The next day, they have them in front of them. Uh, in front of the whole Sanhedrin. So this is Acts 4, verse 5. It's okay. I'll read it. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Then he goes on. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, 
common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man was healed, standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And they threatened him and sent him away, and this begins this relationship where they haul him in front and question him and beat him and throw him in jail. And, uh, and it starts here because they proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus, sorry, Peter and John gave what they had, which is healing in the name of Christ. They boldly proclaimed Jesus' resurrection, and they were known as uneducated common men, but they had been with Jesus. And I want you to take note of Peter's reference to Christ as the cornerstone, because Peter really knows his scriptures and has added a lot of things together to get to this statement. 1 Peter 2, verse 1, this is our passage today, begins with a therefore, or a so in our case. So what is the therefore, therefore, is what some people ask. It is referring back four verses to 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23. Having purified your souls, or having had your souls purified by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So the premise of what our chapter is, is you now are born again, born afresh, and your souls have been purified by obedience. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Peter's saying, do not be entangled in evil. Do not do what is contrary to your new self, to what is being formed in you. For such things are utterly against the brotherly love, commanded in verse 22 of chapter 1. Each evil listed there is a social evil, an evil performed against another. You do not wish bad on yourself, but you can have malice toward others. You do not commit envy against yourself, but against others, right? These are relational evils and cannot exist in the same community as brotherly love. Therefore, put them off as you would put off a garment, is the idiom, never to be taken up again. One commentator asserts that this is a genealogy of sin, meaning that from each, the next one springs forth. So from malice, which is the delight in another's hurt, springs forth deceit, which is where we lie to others. And from deceit springs forth hypocrisy, not showing who you really are. And from hypocrisy springs forth envy, which longs for the good that someone else has. From envy springs forth slander, or hurting another by our words. And this cascade of sin is so common, I don't know about you, but it's so natural that I find myself deep in the list at envy or at gossip even before I realize that I've harbored malice in my heart, been deceitful to start. 
Now, there's no way to get rid of this, to remove this condition without being born again, made spiritually alive from the death that we once lived. I'm going to say that again because it's strange language. When we are born again, we are made spiritually alive from the death that we once lived. Later on in this letter, Peter will make this connection to baptism, where the new believer goes under the waters of death, it's a symbol, and is raised out of them, out of their inanimate, inert, dead state to a life as a new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christianity is active. We must actively pursue right living and good paths. Salvation, beginning with new birth or regeneration, is completely the work of the Lord. We were dead in our sins. The dead can't do anything. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, you are dead in your sins. And this is not mostly dead, as Billy Crystal would say. This is really dead. Once born again, given a new life, we actively work on obeying God as he actively works on our lives so that we can obey him. Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's the command. Work daily on your, sanctifi- on your sanctification journey. For God is working daily on your sanctification journey. You likely know the word synergistic, meaning two things working together for the greater good. So, one child, Hallie, has an idea. Another child, Olivia, knows how to make that idea happen. They come together, they start a business, it's synergistic. They blow Amazon away with their bracelets or supercomputers, I should give them more credit. That's synergistic. There's a corollary to this, an idea that's related to synergism called monergism, and it means to get something done all alone. One person does it all. Synergism, two or more. Monergism, one. And the Bible teaches that salvation is monergistic. God alone does it all. God alone resurrects the spiritually dead and makes us born again. Therefore, God alone will get the glory. The next step in the journey, after being rescued by God, is our sanctification, our becoming more and more pure, looking like Christ. And that is synergistic. At this point, God and I are both working together. We are called partners with Christ in becoming more righteous and in sharing the good news. God saw fit 
to use us humans to accomplish his will. And it's by the grace of God that the Christian has a newfound desire and that the Christian can make choices to avoid the bad and chase after the good. I'm going to confess to you in the intimacy of this little church, not thinking about the internet out there, I'm going to confess to you that my tendency, my natural tendency, is to not work on my spiritual life. On my own, this is a battle. This is an uphill climb. But God, knowing this, has always mercifully placed people in my life that help make me eager to seek him more. So I am spiritually lazy. That is the true definition of sloth. At least the most biblically serious definition of sloth. But God has given me a community. He's given me a wife and now daughters. He's given me friends in the Rose City family that push me beyond myself. They help me to desire righteous ways that others have and want to grasp them for myself. We will look at this as a necessity of community later, toward the end of this passage. But we got to get there first. Incidentally, the third step in the salvation journey after being born again and then walking our whole lives in sanctification, which is pursuing, pursuing purity and righteousness, is glorification. And that's when we are resurrected to eternal life with God. To quote the old hymn, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3, says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Put off, throw away your malice, your evil ways. But when you put off something, you need to replace it. You need to put on something. Put on the desire for pure spiritual nourishment of Jesus. Humans are funny that way. If we remove a bad habit and don't replace it with a good one, often we find ourselves worse than the first sin. And I'm convinced that's why Jesus teaches the lesson that he does in Matthew 12, verses 43 and 45, when he says, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty and swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it also will be with this evil generation. Now, obviously, Jesus is talking directly about a spiritual reality. But certainly, all bad things ought to be replaced by good things. And no matter what the world tells you, no matter what you've heard about human nature, we are not inherently good. Romans 3.10, Romans 3.23 confirm this. We are not good deep inside, and it doesn't, doesn't get better over time. The unbeliever doesn't get better at being good, but worse. 
and even the rescued Christian needs to work hard at replacing their wicked tendencies with good ones. That's by God's grace. Instead of pursuing evil, Peter says, long for, crave like a baby craves milk for the pure food of God's word and work in your life. This verse is not an assumption that Peter's audience is young. It's not an assumption that they are babies in the faith, like Paul does when he's talking about feeding his flock milk. That's in Corinthians. But this is a reference, this milk is a reference to the yearning, the singular yearning that a baby has for one thing, one pure and nourishing thing, milk, and how sweet it is for the Christian. Psalm 34, 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And Jen and I didn't talk when she asked Livy to read that to you today. But God organizes all things for his glory. Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And Ezekiel 3, 1 to 4 also continues this theme. He said to me, Son, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I, Ezekiel, opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you, and it will fill your stomach. Then I ate it. It was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. Now I want to tell you a story. Tradition has it that when a rabbi meets his new students, introduces himself to his new students, he would give each of them a little slate, a little chalkboard that they would one day learn to read and write the scriptures on. Now we're talking about five and six-year-olds. Then that teacher would pour some honey on each slate and have the little kids rub their fingers all over it. Then he'd have them lick their fingers, creating an object lesson for them that they would never forget. Honey was rare. Most children would never have tasted it at that age. They didn't have candy stores or Wonka factories. They'd never had anything so sweet. And the rabbi would bless them then with these words from the psalmist. May the word of the Lord be sweeter than honey to your lips. And from there, these students would go on to learn how to write and to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. God's word is sweet. But God's word is only sweet to the believer. To the believer, it gets sweeter every day. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. At the top of this message, we've seen Peter use this stone image already, and he's actually connecting quite a progression here, starting in Genesis, actually. Uh, In Genesis 49, Abraham has come and gone. He's passed away. Isaac, his son, has passed away. And Jacob is on his deathbed. And so in uh, Genesis 49, verse 24, Jacob has uh, blessed his sons. These are the sons of Jacob. Jacob's also known as Israel. God renames him Israel. So these are the sons or the 12 tribes of Israel. And when he gets down the list to Joseph... Jacob says, you have been made strong by the hands of God, the stone of Israel. Jacob calls God the stone of Israel or the stone of Jacob. And from this point in scripture, God is often referred to as the rock or the stone or the rock of Israel's redemption. This is an image that keeps coming out. But in Psalm 118, which is a praise psalm to God, the author prophetically says, this is Psalm 118, 21 to 23, I will give thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Further in Isaiah, it's altered a little, Isaiah 8, 14, and he will become a sanctuary, a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both the houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And a little further in Isaiah uh, chapter 28, verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be put to haste. Then, New Testament, Jesus picks up on this when he's given his parable of the wicked tenants, and he says to the Pharisees, have you never read the scriptures? This is uh, Matthew 21, 42. Have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Peter brings all this together. He connects all the dots, and in verse 4, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, he's, he's saying Jesus isn't just a living stone. He's the living stone. These are Peter's words to the Sanhedrin, right? Acts 4, 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become this cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jacob, back in Genesis, called God the stone of Jacob. And now Peter is calling Jesus the stone of Jacob. And there is no way that anybody would have mistaken this. He's saying Jesus is God. Jesus is the rock. Jesus 
is the rock of Israel, the rock of redemption, the firm foundation of our faith. Now add to this, Jesus is the one who renamed Simon to Peter. And I'd say that it's for this very moment. It's Peter's line in the sand. Jesus renamed Simon Kephas, which is Aramaic for rock or stone. You see where we're going? Translated, Kephas, translated into Greek is Petros, or Peter in English, meaning rock or stone. And Jesus was not telling him, he was not telling Peter that you will be the rock, as the Roman Catholics read things. But his name was to be a constant reminder of who the rock really is. Peter, you are a rock, but Jesus is the rock, the stone of our faith, the stone that our faith is built upon. So Peter, the little stone, takes this image to its full, saying, you and I, Christians, are to be stones. 1 Peter 2, verse 5, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christians, then, are not stone islands or just a pile of stones. You are living stones, being built up into something amazing, something marvelous, to quote Jesus, the spiritual house of God. Now, the spiritual house of God is the temple. And everyone, even the Gentile audience that Peter's writing to, would have known that. Peter, like Paul, affirms that the people of God, his church, his chosen exiles, are being fitted together to be a living temple on earth. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. So Paul's saying that, and that's how Peter describes his audience. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole scripture being joined, the whole structure, sorry, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Therefore, we are to do everything imaginable to reconcile our differences in the church and our past mistakes, knowing that we belong together so as to be fitted for God's glory. Again, verse 5, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As a living temple and as the holy priests of that temple, you are also to offer yourselves as spiritual sacrifices. Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices in Romans 12.1. Say yes whatever the Lord requires of you. The thing about a living sacrifice is that it can crawl off the altar, can make its own choices, can disobey. Christian, don't do that. Don't live like that. Live as a sacrificial life. Live a sacrificial life, rather. 
like your Lord and Savior. Now, it's ludicrous that our Lord would sacrifice himself, would be the Passover lamb, would be a humble servant instead of some unyielding, impenetrable, impenetrable warrior king. But it's fabulously true. Verse 7-8, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. We were, each of us, destined to disobey, destined to destruction, but instead now chosen and fit together into a living temple of God. Can use the word ludicrous again. This is all ludicrous to the regenerate, unrepentant mind, but it's marvelous to the believer. Jesus lived a life of sacrifice. Now go, do likewise. I think this is a great reason for the church to gather as the church. Local little communities serving and caring for one another in closeness and in interdependence, needing one another incomplete when one believer is absent. The building needs its building blocks. Be Peters. Be building stones. Loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. And Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as some are in the habit, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Feel the urgency here. The day, the day of judgment is drawing near. So gather and pray and encourage and support. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. These are unbelievable statements, claims made upon Gentile believers, which include them in the identity of Israel. They are included in the family of Abraham. Nowadays, you and I have no reference to this for what this would have meant to them. To be a special race really means nothing in a culture, sorry, means nothing for someone that's in a multicultural nation. I'll get there. To be elevated to royalty is outside of our scope. We only know democracy. To be accepted into the priesthood has no reference to someone outside of the time where only a son of Levi could hold that station. These are incredible terms of identity. These are words of special acceptance. Words not lost on the original readers, but they are foreign to us. And yet we must stretch our minds. We must stretch our understanding to grasp what it means to be selected as God's own possession. Holy, royal, chosen, elevated, called out of darkness 
to the privilege of giving God glory and declaring the excellencies of his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this refers to Hosea. Hosea was a prophet of God, and the Lord told him to marry a harlot, a prostitute. And so he did so. It's outrageous. He did so knowing that she had many husbands before him and that she would have many husbands after him. And this becomes a potent object lesson for, of Israel's adultery. And as Hosea's wife bears children, two of them being very likely from other men, Hosea is charged to name them. God says, name the first one Jezreel, meaning scattered, because Israel would be scattered. Name the next one Lo-Ruhamah, meaning no mercy, because God would no longer have mercy and forgive Israel's own harlotry. And the final child was to be called Lo-Ami, meaning not my people. And the Lord said to Hosea, call the child's name not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Hosea 1.9. And Israel was cast off and sent into exile, into dispersion. Remember, Peter is writing to people that he is called exiles of the dispersion. And Peter takes this derogatory name, not my people, that God has called Israel. And he reminds his Gentile audience that they were once Lo-Ami, not my people, and Jezreel, scattered. But God has had Ruhamah and has shown them mercy when they deserve none. We have been shown mercy. Verse 10, once you had not received mercy, but by, God, by Christ's blood, you and I have now been shown mercy. So here's the end of this part of the letter. It's a, it's a bookend to the first part, to verse 1. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So this part of his letter says, Put off your old ways of malice and deceit. Run. Run. Don't walk away from your former evil ways. Be active because your passions are active. Peter says they are at war against your soul and you cannot passively fight the war that's inside you. Thanks be to God for the victory of the cross and for the ability of us to obey our Father in abstaining from evil, in pursuing good, and in proclaiming his glories. Crave God's good. Amen.